Welcome to High Energy Health, where together we explore the leading edge of wellness and happiness. I'm your host, Dawson Church. By choosing this time together, you're declaring your commitment to a positive mindset, elevated emotions, and a great life. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hamilton, and she is a yoga teacher, writer, blogger, and life coach who lives in Santa Monica, California, and through her online daily classes, she connects daily with people all over the world. She's also the co-creator of yogisanonymous.com, which is featured in the New York Times, Yoga Journal, Self Magazine, and the Wall Street Journal. She's also a regular contributor for the Huffington Post and a wellness expert at Mind Body Green. She writes an almost daily blog at blog.yogisanonymous.com. Her newest book is called Yoga's Healing Power, Looking Inward for Change, Growth, and Peace. And I was so touched, not just by her explanation of what she calls the eight steps of yoga, but also her personal stories, those of herself and her clients, that show how they apply those to their daily lives. So, Ali, welcome, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Mm. Well, when I read in the introduction that there were eight limbs of yoga, I was like, really? I thought there was only one, because uh, my wife takes regular yoga classes, and, and just it's, it's foundation of her practice. But, of course, it's all about the asanas. And so you introduced us to many other aspects of yoga that I didn't know about at all. And I'd love to have you share what those are and also how you explain them and use them in your life. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I, um, I've i been teaching, I've been practicing yoga for 25 years. I started when I was um, in my senior year at Columbia University, which feels like another lifetime. <laughs> um, and I... You know, I quickly found, when I say quickly, over the first year, really, of practicing, um, that things were shifting in my life for the better, and that was fascinating to me. I had a sense that it was because of my yoga practice, but I didn't really understand why, and eventually ended up doing a teacher training, and now I lead teacher trainings, and, um, you know, you cover the eight limbs of yoga when you do a teacher training, but I think that there are so many people across the globe who practice yoga and they're never going to do a teacher training. And I felt like um, I really wanted to share the other seven limbs because I think culturally we see it's just very normal. We focus on the physical and um, if you get on Instagram, for example, there are all these yogis and they're gorgeous and they're on yachts in Bali with like their ankles behind their head. But you know, you might think to yourself, well, what does this have to do with my life and my kids screaming in the backseat or my deadline for work or, you know, relationship challenges? I mean, what is what is the real um, heart of this? And for me, that's really been my passion uh, when I teach, when I'm in the room and when I'm filming classes for the site and when I'm writing. 
is to try to share the tools that have most helped me in my own life. And, yeah, it really comes across in the book that these are all highly meaningful um, aspects for you and that they also interlock, that one supports the other. It seems as though, for example, the meditation practice can support the physical practice and that some of the other practices can be like an interlocking network that support each other. Very much, and I think that, um, you know, I feel when I wrote the book, I felt like I want to I wanna appeal to people who maybe have never done yoga, but also to people who've been practicing for years and want to take it, you know, to a deeper, um, just to explore these deeper aspects. And there is so much that you can bring onto your mat with you that will follow you off of your mat you know, when you're done with the physical practice, for example, and this is one example of many, but focal points, you know, we have focal points in every pose, um, and it really trains the mind to do one thing at a time. You know, part of it is that you, you want to settle your gaze because there's the saying where the awareness goes, the energy flows, you know, so if your eyes are moving all over the room, your energy is kind of dissipating, um, but part of it is it's the same ability that you use if you're in a crowded restaurant and you're trying to focus on what your friend is saying. You know, it's like, what am I going to put the importance on here? And being able to do that on your mat, you know, and just working on that every day um, is just it's like almost a surefire way to start to be able to do that more in your life. I think a lot of people want to be more present, you know, want to be more present with their loved ones, want to be um, more present for themselves, too. You know, if you set aside a couple of hours for your passion project and then you end up scrolling on Facebook instead, you know, there went that time and you don't get it back. And so, um, you know, that's just one of many ways, you know, one of many things that you can practice on your map that I think really helps when you're out in the world. Um, other you know, other things that I shifted myself, for example, just loud inner critic. When I started practicing yoga, I had a really, I think, you know, it's very kind to other people, but the quality of my inner voice was really harsh and unforgiving and relentless and shaming. And, um, you know, my standards for myself were so unrealistic that I was bound to be constantly disappointed in myself and berating myself. And it was you're kind of like being in prison. You're, you're, you know, the voice in your head is like, how do you go about evicting that or shifting that? And that's something that I started working on on my mat as well when I became aware of it. A lot of these habits are so ingrained, we don't even like question them. You know, um, I think I was so used to that, that voice that I didn't think to, you know, conceptualize of like another, what it would be like if I had a kind voice inside my head. It didn't even occur to me that there was a problem. But when I got on my knot, you know, I was 20 at this point. That's a long time to be, <laughs> to be living that way. Um, I realized you need to quiet down and you're listening to your breath and you're moving with your body. And I just started to feel like, wow, you know, if I fall out of a pose, I am just so hard on myself and Part of it was ballet. I'd been doing ballet for 12 years um, growing up, and part of it was this type A perfectionist personality stuff, um, and part of it was 
um, childhood stuff, you know, and things that I had internalized. And so I just, I realized at a certain point, I really need to shift that if I want to be happy. If I move through the day, if I take a left and I should have taken a right, I don't want to call myself an idiot, you know, <laughs> like I want to be able to say, it's okay. I, I'm going to turn the car around. It's not a big deal. I'm a human being, you know. Um, and so do you succeed in doing that? Well, when I would get on my mat and let's, you know, everybody's got places in their body where they carry tension and certain poses are going to be confrontational. It's kind of the nature of the yoga practice. And so when I would come upon a pose that wasn't happening easily for me, or if I would fall out of a pose, you know, um, instead of allowing myself to listen to that voice that was so shaming and unkind, I would say, you know what, I'm not, it's fine. Like, I carry tension in my shoulders. I'm going to just breathe through that and, you know, explore that and not get into this thing of, like, I hate my shoulders and I can't do this pose and look at the person next to me is doing it. Like, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feed that. I started to really understand that whatever you feed is going to grow and strengthen. And so I, I consciously decided I was going to feed a kinder, voice, one that would, like, root me on instead of tear me down. How long did that take to replace one or the other? It took quite a while. I mean, it's not, it's definitely not, um, you know, an overnight thing when you are looking to, for me, I really felt like I need to rewire my whole system kind of from the ground up. There were so many coping mechanisms and uh, habits that I had, and I think, you know, wounds that I've been carrying around for a long time that I needed to... Uh, to be with in order to heal that for me it was a long process um it took years but I always say to people you know I'd rather start that journey and start that process even if it's like three years five years whatever um than spend a lifetime you know just accepting that this is how I am or this is how things are you know it doesn't have to be like that and so I think just beginning that shift and committing to that idea of change and growth and possibility, it you you start to feel a little bit excited somewhere in there, even if it feels daunting sometimes or there are days where you feel hopeless or you shift back into old behaviors that don't serve you. I think just bringing, bringing it into your awareness and your consciousness, like I do have some habits here that I want to look at and I want to change, gives you some hope and some motivation and some inspiration to stay with it. I remember one of the stories you tell in the book is about going to yoga classes early on and there being a man who you wanted to avoid. And it wasn't as though there was anything wrong with him, although you realized that it was because under his breath he was cursing to himself, cursing himself, whenever yeah. he failed to do a pose correctly or fall out of a pose. And you recount how uncomfortable you felt being around that energy during a yoga class. And, of course, he was obviously assessing himself based purely on his performance and nothing yeah. else. And, uh, yeah, yeah, trapped in that place that you escaped from. I think that I, yeah, and I think for me it was so familiar because, you know, he was just externalizing a voice that I had had in my head for my whole yeah. life. So it was very painful for me. Um, I had at that point, you know, when that happened, I had gone a long way towards shifting that whole inner environment for myself. And when I would stand next to him, I, 
it just broke my heart. You know, I would hear him like audibly, um, you know, curse under his breath. And I did. I tried to talk to him about it one day after class and he was not, you know, he was not receptive. And, and that's the thing with any change for any of us. Um, you know, always has to come from, from ourselves. You know, it's like somebody can say to you, you know, you really might want to think about this, but if you're not ready to hear it or to look at it or to shift it, it really doesn't matter what anybody says. So that's what I've found over the years. Well, I feel very fortunate because, you know, when you teach yoga um, or even with the writing and the blogging, it's like people reach out when they're ready, you know, when they do want to make a shift, they reach out. And it's so gratifying to be able to say, well, here, look, here's some things that really worked for me. Why don't you give this a shot? You know, um, it's nice to work with people who are receptive and who are looking to, to change some things and to work on themselves. And, you know, I look around, and I'm sure you do too, and all of us, you know, and there's so much violence in the world right now and hatred and, you know, pain. And I feel like it's such a, a reflection of what's happening within us you know, and that if you really want to see things around you change, the best place to start is just to see, like, how much peace exists within me, how kind is my inner world, how compassionate, how accepting, how patient, how tolerant, um, you know, and how can I, how can I best use my yoga practice or whatever practices people use. I don't see, I'm not one of these, like, yoga is the only way. People, I think it's one really incredibly great way for many, many people, but I don't think it's the only way. Um, but whatever it is that you do in order to bring yourself into balance and tune in and check in, you know, how, in what ways can you use your practice to create more peace within you, more love, you know, more steadiness? Yes, and you're right. There are other ways, and this is one way. And then if you're able to detect that voice and be witness to that voice, then you do have some hope of moving at least to a different space, even if you can't get rid of it altogether, and it's a very powerful way of doing that. But I just thought it was so tragic to think about people doing yoga in this place where they could be at peace, they, they could be really focused on their breath, their bodies, being present with themselves, with the rest of the people in the class, and then are moving to that state of self-criticism, self-blame, where they're assessing themselves so badly, because there always will be somebody better and worse than you at any yeah. physical pursuit, whether it's driving the bus or <laughs> flying the kite or <laughs> yes. riding the yes. blog. It's that whole sort of comparing and contrasting, you know, sickness that we have in our culture where we're always looking around to figure out how we're doing. And, I, you know, people do it in class all the time. They go into, you know, a hamstring opener. And they start looking at the person next to them. Oh, she's in full split. Look at me. I'm like halfway there and I have to stop. And wow, you know, I think and it must be so wonderful to be her. And <laughs> meanwhile, there's like no correlation between open hamstrings and an open heart or, you know, open hamstrings and, you know, more happiness. I mean, if there were, we would know it and we would have seen pictures of Martin Luther King Jr. and splits or, you know, Nelson Mandela or, we would know, you know, so there really isn't a, um, you know, there is there is no relationship between opening different parts of your body and being happier, but we do that with everything. It's like, you know, we say, oh, I'll lose 10 pounds and I'll be happier. I'll have a, you know, I'll meet the person who's going to complete me and I'll be happier. I'll have a bigger house or, 
a different car, different job, pair of shoes, you know, I'll get that yoga pose and then I'll be happy. And so we chase it and really it's inside. That is what the research shows I have been writing about and reflecting on happiness for the last few years. And that's definitely what the research shows is that it's an inside job and there's a certain point at which things will make you happy. But then after your basic physical needs are 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 resolved. You have refrigeration, you have enough clean water, you're able to clean yourself, you have a safe environment, you have a roof over your head, you have basic transportation, enough money to cover your basic needs, then people's level of happiness does actually not correlate with um, with their material possessions. So, yeah, yeah. it is yeah. definitely something that we have to work on internally ourselves. For sure, yeah. So, as you've been doing yoga and teaching yoga for such a long time, um, what have you found some of the benefits to your students are who do it? I know obviously it makes you more flexible. It's a counteraction of the habitual postures we get into that tend to contract us and cement our physiology into these predictable ways. Hunching over, hunching our shoulders is one of them. Craning over, leaning our necks, sitting too long, being in the same position too long as we work and so on, but what have you found happening opening up for your students as they began to explore yoga? I think it's it's exactly as you described. It's sort of, um, there's a two-part, I have a two-part answer, you know, it's, we all have habits and some of them are physical, as you were describing, like, you know, you might carry a lot of tension in your shoulders or you might clench your jaw or furrow your eyebrows or maybe your hips are really tight. Um, so those would be your physical habits, you know, and then we have our emotional habits as well. And so what happens on your mat when you start to move is that all of your habits um, arrive with you. You unroll your mat. It's not like you check that stuff at the door, you know, it, it walks right onto your mat with you. And so you have a, an opportunity to observe, okay, if every time the teacher says, you know, let your head hang in a forward fold, I have to, like, release my head, then you realize, oh, I carry a lot of tension in my neck. Um, you know, if you go into shoulder openers and you're like, wow, like, I am, this is a lot of tension, a lot of holding up here. Let me just know that because so many habits exist outside of our awareness. And if that's the case, then you can't, you can't, there's no power to make a choice about anything. It's just happening below the surface, right? And the same thing with our emotional habits or our psychological habits, however you want to look at it. You know, if you tend to um, let fear stop you, for example, and, you know, you're going to, now the teacher wants you to go into this arm balance and maybe you have, you know, I don't want to fall on my face. I don't want to break my nose or whatever it is that, you know, whatever the fear is for you. Um, so you take a water break or you go to the bathroom, you know, at that point in class or whatever the habit is, you know, it's going to show up with you on your mat. And so you have this incredible opportunity. It's kind of like a laboratory, like your own personal laboratory because it's quiet and there's you and your breath and your the sensations in your body. And you get to figure out, okay, let me know myself. Svadhyaya, right? Let me know myself. Let me figure out where I'm holding and how I can start to release, find more freedom. Yeah, and during that kind of a practice, you are really aware of that much more than in everyday life. Ali, I'd love to have you review 
what those eight limbs of yoga are that you cover in the introduction. You mentioned how most people, of course, are familiar with yoga postures, but you bring so many more aspects into yoga. And let's just go ahead and cover all of those parts of yoga that are besides the, the asanas. Sure. Um, so the eight limbs, and, you know, I can sort of break them down after I just tell you what they are, but it's, it's yama and niyama are the first two. And the yama and niyama are sort of like yoga's shalls and shall not. And then we have asana, which is the physical practice. We have um, pranayama, which is the uh, breath work, breathing practices. Pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. Um, dhyana and dharana. These are both um, meditation practices, which I can explain the difference a little bit there. And samadhi, which means uh, ecstasy or non-dual absorption, you know, you're becoming in the flow, in the flow. And so um, the yama and niyama, I think, are interesting for people because every spiritual tradition has that, you know, that list of thou shalt not kill and et cetera. And that's sort of, this is yoga's um, sort of Ten Commandments, if you will. And the very first one is ahimsa, ahimsa, and it means non-harming. And, you know, I think um, I was starting to talk about that a little bit earlier. You might think to yourself, well, of course, you know, I'm going to move through the world. I'm not going to hurt anyone. Uh, Maybe I'm going to think about my diet, what I'm eating, my carbon footprint. I mean, there are so many different areas where you can think about non-harming, but also to shift it and think about, again, your internal dialogue. Maybe you've got the outward step down, but you're still kind of leaving yourself out of the equation. Um, satya means truthfulness, so, you know, you're going to speak the truth, but also recognize it in other people, recognize what is true for someone else, or what is true in any given situation, sometimes we don't want to see what's true, if it means we're going to have to change, or things are going to change, um, asteya means non-stealing, and so, you know, again, all of these things have, like, deeper deeper meanings, of course, you're not going to, like, walk into a store and steal something, but also you're not going to steal somebody's time by being chronically late, or you're not going to steal somebody's energy, you know, if you can see that someone needs to be somewhere and they're trying to leave, you're going to let them, you know, um, brahmacharya, which means, well, the classic traditional um, definition of brahmacharya was abstinence chastity, but in our sort of modern yogi dialogue, um, it's, it's more to do with being responsible with your energy, your sexual energy. So if you're in a committed relationship, for example, you know, you're not going to be flirting with people over social media or online at the grocery store. Um, some people think about it in terms of their, their energy in general, being careful with your and not saying yes to everything, you know. Um, but the traditional definition had to do with sexual energy and abstinence. Um, aparigraha means non-courting, um, grievelessness, you know, not feeling like more is better. And I, you know, I need to, to sort of understand like this is a planet. It's got limited resources. And if I suck up way more than, you know, my share, somebody else has less. And just to think about, to think about that, um, 
obsession we have with, you know, collecting more and more things, stuff. I mean, how much stuff do you have in your closet that you don't really need and that, that kind of thing. And then the niyamas are personal observances, sausha, which means um, cleanliness. And so that has to do with not just your own, you know, personal hygiene, but also your health. You know, like if there's clutter everywhere, usually, again, that's an outward manifestation of an inward situation. So if your mind is really cluttered, it's going to be hard to shift that if you walk into your house and there's stuff everywhere. Um, Santosha means contentment. And sort of, I, you know, I talk about a gratitude practice in the book retraining the mind to look at all the things that you do have right now that are going well, um, that are flowing so that you're coming from a place of abundance instead of lack and fear. Tapas, which means discipline, eat. So, you know, that might depend on each person, but getting to your mat every day or going on that hike or whatever it is, sometimes the couch is calling to you to say to yourself, I know I'm going to feel better if I, like, give this to myself, you know, for a little while. Um, Sadhyaya, I mentioned that earlier, self-study and um, being known to yourself, you know, and then uh, Ishvara Panidana, which means um, devotion to something greater than yourself. It doesn't have to be God, you know, but just understanding that you are part of something much larger than just, just you. Wow, beautiful. And so those are the First two limbs, the the five yamas and five uh, niyamas. And then, of course, you have the third limb, which is the one we're most uh, familiar with. Meditation. Yeah, postures. And what's funny is that, you know, traditionally, you wouldn't even start the physical practice until you had the yama niyama down, you know. And so um, I don't think it has to go that way. I don't really... For me, it's like, hey, if somebody wants to come into the room because they want arms like Jennifer Aniston, I'm fine with that because I trust that over time, the deeper aspects of the practice are going to seep in there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Uh, they want arms like Jennifer Aniston. That brings up a DOE class. Going on, Ali, with that third limb of the eight limbs of yoga, asana, and you actually have quite a bit of um, information as to what that one limb is. It's more than just the postures. Yes. Well, with, so the third, yeah, you the yama and the niyama, and then you have asana, which actually in the, in the, in the beginning, Patanjali, back in 400 CE, um, you know, described the asana practice as just like a few simple postures and, you know, that was it. It was basically like, okay, reach up, fold forward, sit down and meditate. It's <laughs> not a lot of, um, today we have so many, you know, so many flows, flow classes and intense physical practices. And it's beautiful. It's what people like. And I think it's great. I think it, um, it's just a beautiful way of taking care of your body. Um, but it, it is more, it is more than that. And, um, you know, now when we, when we're on the mat, as I was saying earlier, it's like, you know, there's the postures, but there's also the focal points and, um, the breathing practices. So that's actually the next, the next limb is pranayama, and prana means life force, and yama means control. So we're like controlling 
the life force controlling the breath, and that's something that you bring onto your mat, the physical practice. The foundation of it is being aware of your inhales and exhales and trying to lengthen them out and, um, you know, deepen them. We talk about ujjayi breath, which means ocean-sounding breath. And so there are other breathing practices as well. But for most people, you know, just to start with, um, ujjayi breath makes sense, especially if they're getting on their mat, because you want to sync up the breath with the movement and the breath is there to support the pose. So that, for example, you'll find you're inhaling during movements where you expand and extend the spine, and you're exhaling during movements where you contract, where you draw the navel in. So the, the breathing is there to support the movement, and that is part of what helps it become a moving meditation. If you are focused on the breath while you're on your mat, um, and you're thinking about, okay, where is my right heel, and where is my left arch, and where is my focal point? You're not thinking about the pressures in your life or a conversation you had earlier or one you have to have later. You're right in the moment. Um, and so all of these limbs work really nicely together. Uh, do you want me to go to the next one? Yeah, please, the fifth limb. So Pratyahara is, is the fifth one, and it traditionally means withdrawal of the senses, but literally Prati means away from, and Ahara means food. And so away from food, but not literal food, you know, like what are we eating for dinner? Obviously, you're not going to be eating while you're on your mat, but also thoughts, you know, that we feed ourselves and ideas, sometimes self-limiting beliefs. Um, when you work with the breath, the main sound that you're hearing hopefully is your own breathing. You're taking a little less information from the world around you through the ears. And the focal points are helping you to take in a little less information through the eyes. And the sensations in your body are things that are happening right here, right now. Um, and so Pratyahara, being able to spend that time on your mat, um, focus on the world that's happening within you instead of the one that's happening around you, is a beautiful way to kind of tune in and see, okay, what do I need to... How do I, what do I need today to bring myself into balance or to nurture myself, um, to strengthen myself? You know, does it mean I need to back off a little bit today? Does it mean I'm going to fire things up? You know, what am I in need of in order to, to strengthen? And it's as important to withdraw from the things that don't serve you as it is to embrace the things that do. So that's a great lens that yes. is worth cultivating. Yes, no doubt. And, you know, meditation practices start to really help with Pratyahara as well. And that's really the next two limbs, um, Dharana, Dhyana, are both you're heading towards Samadhi, which is the final limb. But um, being able to sit down and observe the breath again. So now we're not moving around the mat. We're not reaching up and holding forward. We're just going to sit now and notice the breath. And I think for a lot of people there's a little confusion about meditation where they think, oh, I'm, I'm going to try not to think. And the minute you the minute you say, I'm going to try not to think, of course what happens, right? You're just, <laughs> what is? Good luck with that part. million different thoughts, right? And so I always say to, to people, like, if you want to develop a sense of humor about yourself, then try meditating because, you know, you'll find you're such a riot with all your, with all your thoughts. I mean, and there's that great saying, you know, you don't have to believe everything you think. Um, 
and it's really true. It's, it's we're not trying to get rid of the thoughts. It's never going to happen. All it is is you sit down, and, and you know, some days you are you go to sit and you, you say, okay, I'm going to just notice my breath, and maybe you get an inhale, and the mind starts thinking about dinner, and you notice that. Okay, wait a minute. Let me pick my mind up and come back again, and you know, start over. Um, and so maybe you get an inhale, an exhale, an inhale, and oops, you know, you're daydreaming, and you catch yourself, and you come back. Um, and that's fine. You're, you're doing it. You know, you're meditating. It's not. It's not this. You have to be in a white room, and everything has to be really quiet. Because if that's the case, when are we ever going to get to meditate? You know, it's you're just trying to. Keep the breath, keep that awareness of the breath, and be aware. If there are thoughts, there are thoughts. That's okay. I'm just going to come back to the breath. I'm going to come back to the breath. And sometimes you find, oh, I sit down and I can do that. I can just go to the breath. You know, it's happening more, it's happening more easily. There's um, less uh, distraction. There's less, you know, I'm not being pulled away as easily. I can get this sense that I am. Um, I'm just here breathing. I'm kind of, what I find in my own practice is that when you sit long enough, you start to lose that exact sense of where your body is ending and the floor is beginning. And, you know, where your body is ending and the air is beginning around you. You know, you start to really not be able to clearly um, locate that space. And I find that's exactly what you want because, that's the whole point, you know, that we are connected to everything around us. And samadhi, which is the final limb, is um, ecstasy. That's the, that is the definition. Um, but you can also think of it as non-dual absorption. You are part of the flow. There is no you, you know, there's just being. And even if you get a taste of that, that's beautiful, you know, um, I think most of us, when we have passions in our lives, things that we love to do, it's because we lose ourselves. It's, you know, it's because it absorbs us so fully that time flies, you know, and wow, we just spent an hour, whether it's painting or, or whatever it is for you, you lose, you lose yourself to find yourself. Yeah, and that, that stage where, that, that point where what you found is oneness with you all that is, is a powerful yeah. experience and one that even when they have that experience, almost never will forget that and will always remember that as a high point in their lives. Ali, one question I have that is uh, really interesting about yoga that was on my radar a few years ago, but now is, is yoga injuries. And it happened when I was uh, actually myself in yoga class. I was taking yoga classes for a long time with a wonderful teacher, and then I, uh, I got sore shoulders. Like I, I, I actually wasn't able to do yoga for maybe a year, two years because of those. And I was sitting with my friend Jack Hanfield having lunch a few months ago, and um, he said that he was in the yoga class and had become injured as well and wasn't able to do yoga. And then the same month, I happened to run into an old friend of mine who was a yoga teacher, and I said, and she'd always been kind of a really well-known teacher in, in our, our area, and uh, she was an outrageous yoga teacher. She was just, just fantastic, amazingly limber and flexible. And... Um, she, I just talked to her and she said, I said, saying, well, how's your yoga? How are your yoga classes going? And uh, she said, oh, I had to give up teaching yoga because I developed an auto- autoimmune disease and I just wrecked my body. She said, I just was doing show off yoga and I just, I just so 
injured my joints at the time. Mm-hmm. I've had to give up, yeah. up, um, up, up teaching. So I then looked on the web. I looked up yoga injuries and discovered there's a whole industry of, of chiropractors and functional medicine doctors and all kinds of people who treat those with yoga injuries. And if you just Google yoga injuries, yoga yeah. injuries, you find literally thousands of, of entries and blog posts, and websites, and and stories about people who injure themselves um, in in the pursuit of this this wonderful thing that yeah. helps so many people. And um, I'm just just curious as to what your own process has been with that and, and that of your students as you as you've sort of yes. been aware oh, of that I'm that whole dark side very, of yoga. Very glad that you asked the question. Actually, I because it breaks my heart. You know, it's not uncommon. Not uncommon. And I think there's two things. I mean, um, one of them is. I am really, I'm like, I think the place where my type A personality serves me well is with alignment because so many people, and I practice, I can tell you a story from my own life, you know, um, the first five years I was doing yoga, I practiced with incredible teachers and I had already done teacher training and yet I was doing Chaturanga, which we do a million times, the class, right? I was doing it improperly, and no one stopped me. And that's five years where nobody stopped me. Different teachers, you know, all over. And uh, until eventually someone did. The person who did, actually, is Beryl Bender-Birch. She's an amazing Ashtanga teacher. And I just went, I did a, I did a workshop with her because I just loved her so much. I, she, she's wonderful. And the first Chaturanga idea. She was like, oh, wait, whoa, what are you doing? Don't do that. You know, and I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> I do this every day. She was like, no, you got to make sure your shoulders do not dip lower than your elbows in Chaturanga. And it, I mean, man, did I get it. You know, it's a 90 degree angle. And I can tell you, most shoulder injuries from yoga, that's what it's coming from, Chaturanga, because we do it over and over again. So when I teach, I... Almost every class, you know, I mean, the people that are practicing with me in Santa Monica all the time, they've got their chaturangas down, man, because I don't mess around with that pose. Um, it's your rotator cuff, you know, it's the four muscles of the shoulder. So you want to make sure it's a great pose for strengthening if you do it right. But if nobody ever breaks it down for you and you're just kind of in this, like, sort of sloppy, awful chaturanga, you're going to hurt yourself, and it's really just a matter of time. So, um that is one example. Another, the knees, you know, everybody's got different issues in their body, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. So when you go to practice, you want to make sure, and it's one of the things online, too, on the website, there's a whole pose library there, because I do want to be sure somebody at home that I can't see, they can understand what it is they're supposed to be doing just based on, you know, what I'm saying and also what they're seeing in front of them. Um, so I'm really, really careful about that and I think for many of us who um like your friend you know your friend the teacher there's most people when you start to practice um especially those those of us who become teachers we go through our extreme phase and for me it was I did a shanga for years so I started with slow classes and then eventually in 2001 I started doing shanga and in a shanga they stand on you and they push on you and they pull on you and um, they very much, and I don't mean that there's beautiful things about that practice. And if you have the right personality and the right mindset and you can practice with compassion and respect and know in your body when you feel a no, I think it can be absolutely brilliant. But 
if you're like I was, the no doesn't mean anything to you. You're going to keep going anyway. And so many teachers go through that phase, and they do. They injure themselves, or they push it too much with the joints. They have spines. You know, I mean, we go too far. I, I went through a point where I did a juice fast for 108 days. That's insane. You know, that's not healthy. <laughs> like, you shouldn't do that, you know. But I was in that zone of, like, I'm I'm trying to, like, purify down, you know. Well, how are you purifying, <laughs> you know? Like, all you eat is things anyway. Calm down, you know. So I think that most yoga teachers go through that phase, and some of us stay in it longer. And unfortunately, those of us who stay in it longer, yeah, we walk away with injuries. Your knees are not going to be happy with you. When you're 65, if you pushed yourself into lotus pose and your hips weren't ready for it at 25, you're going to pay for it later. So I'm really careful. I mean, I'm very much aware at this point in my own life, my own practice, when I'm teaching, that you've got to get the foundation down. And you have to help people do that. And you especially have to watch out for the people who never put their knees down, never take child's pose, never back off, you know. Those are the people that you got to watch out for more so in many ways than the people who are tighter and, you know, need to grab blocks and need to grab straps because those two, they're, they're listening to their bodies. You know that they are. They're going to get a prop to lift the floor up. They're going to get a strap. You know, they're, it's the people that are like I was, you know, that are a little bit crazy <laughs> who are going to push it and maybe they're competitive athletes or whatever it is. Um, yes, it is easy to get injured if you don't back off when your body says please back off and I wrote about that a lot in the book because nothing makes me sadder than like well there might be a few things that make me sadder but one of the things that makes me really sad is when somebody you know wants to develop a yoga practice wants to work on themselves wants to be at peace and they end up getting hurt that to me is you know it's it's a heartbreak so um yeah it's like anything it's a tool and it's how you use it you know and also, I, what I took away from the, that lesson was that I needed to just listen to my body. And um, while it wasn't, because I recognized that when I got injured, that it wasn't the, the teacher pushing me, it was me pushing myself. And that um, I had been feeling uncomfortable and then just sort of going on. And so there's, a, there's this real uh, there's this real tension here. You want to stretch yourself. You want to become more flexible. You want to challenge yourself. And it's necessary to be really in tune with your body. And so knowing when... It's time to really release and just move a little deeper into the posture, and when it's time to to do just the opposite and say, thus far, and my body isn't going to be happy with me going further. That's a really delicate balance, and it's, 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 it really develops our ability to tune in and listen. So, so for me, I've gone back to yoga, but now with a really enhanced Yay. ability to tune in at a very fine levels to where I need to be. And like my wife, yeah. never gets injured. She takes you know hard yoga classes. Uh, easy yoga classes, she has a whole variety of them, and she's so in tune with her body that she never gets injured. But I think that 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 sometimes, um, if we don't have that that ability, that we can discover to our cost that um, that not having that ability can really carry a heavy penalty. Yes, it's just like in life. You know, if you don't know when to give yourself a break, eventually you're going to collapse. Right? It's the same. So. Um I'm more like you, you know. I, ha- I had to get injured in order to figure it out. Learning the hard way, school of hard knocks. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, the P- I mean, a lot of us have, have got a PhD from the school of hard knocks. So yes. uh, <laughs> I, I graduated. I get it. 
Yeah, you want to you want to learn the easy way, if at all possible. Oh, it's yes. such a pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate oh, you sharing those eight limbs of yoga, your story, the stories of some of the people you worked with, and I just so appreciate the honesty and the the candor you you show in your book, Yoga Yoga's Healing Power. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.